This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, a program affiliate of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. I would say that almost 100% of the time, when I hear or use the word blasphemy, it's done in the most hyperbolic and somewhat silly case, such as, how dare you say that any group is better than the Beatles? That's blasphemy. Or, what do you mean you like this restaurant's pasta sauce better than mom's? That's blasphemy. But for many people around the world today, being accused of committing blasphemy is serious business, and in some cases can be life-threatening. And laws surrounding blasphemy can also stifle free speech. Today we will discuss some of the history of blasphemy laws and how different religions react to both adherents and non-believers who dare cross the often hazy lines between scholarly criticism and honest expression and purposeful offense that can be prosecuted. Rabbi and scholar Armin Langer recently wrote an article for The Conversation at theconversation.com entitled Quran Burning in Sweden Prompts Debate on the Fine Line Between Freedom of Expression and Incitement of Hatred. It covers a great deal of ground that I believe is important in today's landscape of religious tensions. A bit about our guest, Armin Langer is a visiting assistant professor at the University of Florida's Center for European Studies. Prior to joining UF, he was a visiting research scholar at Brandeis University. Armin holds a Ph.D. in sociology from the Humboldt University of Berlin. He also studied philosophy and Jewish studies in Budapest, Jerusalem, Potsdam, and Washington, D.C. He was ordained as a rabbi by the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and has had teaching and pulpit positions in Jewish communities in the United States, Mexico, Sweden, Germany, Austria, and Hungary. So we welcome to Common Threads, Armin Langer. Hello, Armin. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You're more than welcome. So I'm curious, How long have you been studying this particular subject? That is to say, blasphemy, religious incitement, hate speech, etc. I mean, I would say I've been studying how majoritarian societies narrate their cultural religious identities vis-a-vis religious minorities for my whole life. I grew up in Europe as a Jew. I've been involved in Jewish communities for a long time now. And discussions around belonging and exclusion from uh, mainstream European societies have been accompanying me ever since. Um, That doesn't mean, of course, that my research is about my personal biography, but personal biographies do inform uh, the researchers, the scholars' interest to some degree, definitely. And um, that's also my background and how I came to research uh, religious minorities in Europe, in particular Jews and Muslims, and how their religious cultures, religious norms are perceived by the larger uh, European societies, uh, Christian or Christian-influenced secular majorities in particular. Uh, You write in your article, while freedom of expression is a fundamental human right in liberal democracies, the right to express one's opinion can become complex when expressing one's views clashes with the religious and cultural beliefs of others and when this rhetoric veers into hate speech. How do you define the difference between uh, expressing, expressing an opinion that might be critical of another religion or at least might be critical of some adherence of another religion, or, of course, we could also talk about scholarly criticism and hate speech. Right. I mean, uh, that's, of course, a very complicated question. Uh, In general, I would say that uh, at the end of the day, it comes down to the motivation of the individual. Why is that person uh, 
expressing their criticism towards another religious culture um is that because of a genuine concern or is it because they are trying to propagate um hatred we find both of these motivations i think when we look at the people who've been um involved in various anti-islam or anti-islamic uh, actions in the past years so it, we really have to look at the individual case before uh, making any judgment. I, I also want to add that, it, I, in my opinion, it does make a difference whether somebody who belongs to the majority criticizes a religious culture that's in a minority, or if it's somebody who belongs to that particular religious minority, or used to belong to that particular religious minority. and from that position within their group uh, expresses criticism. So I, I think the position in which we are when we are uh, criticizing religious practices, religious customs, uh, also makes a big difference whether we are speaking about uh, legal or, or permitted, whatever, speech versus hate speech. And, and also, I think I should mention, and the listeners can, of course, hear it on my accent. I'm not, I'm not American. Coming from Europe, I have a different view on uh, the limits of free speech, as most Americans do. Uh, obviously, in, in the United States, um, there is no regulation of hate speech, but that's, of course, different in Europe, where most countries actually uh, outlaw uh, speech that is uh, judged and perceived as hate speech or incitement in particular against uh, minorities. So Armin, would you say that you align yourself more with the European view of, of uh, hate speech uh, and freedom of expression as opposed to the American understanding where there is no legal ramification for what we might agree is hate speech? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to answer to your question. I think that both approaches have benefits and drawbacks. Um, when I see people express openly anti-Semitic views here in the United States, and I know marching up and down with uh, swastikas or, or other symbols of white nationalism, which are banned in most European countries, on the one, on the one hand, I think I feel kind of a relief because at least they are open about their ideology. They're not hiding what they believe in. Um, and, you know, it's easy to know <laughs> who the white nationalists are because they are parading around with swastikas. Um, back in Europe, obviously, they're not going to do that because they would end up uh, having to pay a fine or even in prison in some cases. So instead they are using code words it's much more hidden much more secretive so it takes more effort to identify who is the anti-semite who is the white nationalist um so one could argue that there are some benefits to uh, the lack of such regulation meaning uh, those who want to uh, perpetrate hate speech will do it and it's easier to identify them once we identify the perpetrators of hate speech is also easier to prepare strategies against countering hate speech. So I'm, I'm not going to say that one strategy or model is better than the other. I think both of them have benefits and drawbacks. To say, to name maybe some of the benefits of the European model, uh, we know that hate speech has an impact on uh, minorities and the targets of this hate speech. Hate speech doesn't just stay in the air. It has an, an impact on the mental health of uh, minorities who are targeted by that hate speech. Um, it can encourage some extremists who are open to violence to commit violent acts of terror. There is a connection between hate speech and how we tolerate hate speech in the public sphere. And how that can encourage certain individuals to become terrorists. And um, that is, I guess, a benefit uh, of the European model that hate speech in the public sphere is not as tolerated as 
here in the US. Um, then again, I don't think there is a clear uh, winner in, in, in this comparison. Both models have uh, benefits and drawbacks. Sure, sure. Now let's talk about blasphemy. Uh, what would you say is the difference between blasphemy, blasphemy and hate speech? I'm, I'm guessing that sometimes they can be uh, identical, they can be crossover, but isn't there often a difference between what someone might consider blasphemous and what someone might consider hate speech? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I gotta say, I, I, I find both of these terms kind of problematic. Um, first of all, I don't think that hate in itself is an illegitimate feeling. Like, um, so I wouldn't say that hate speech in itself without knowing what it means should be a problematic thing. Like um, hating, I don't know, like I hate wasps, the, the insect. That's a legitimate feeling. Um, I'm I'm, jo I'm joking, but, but 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 the point is the point is hate in itself. I think is not an illegitimate thing, and maybe it would be more accurate to speak of racist speech or anti-Semitic speech to be more specific and define what we are talking about, uh, misogynistic speech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, instead of using a term which is very generic and in itself maybe not a problem, uh, namely hate. Um, and the same with blasphemy. We know that historically the term blasphemy was used in an exclusively Christian context. Um, it referred to uh, denouncing Christian tenets of faith, in particularly denouncing God. Um, and since it was used in a Christian context, it referred to denouncing the Christian concepts of God. So while we use the term blasphemy for criticism of the Quran or criticism of Islamic teachings. I'm not sure if technically the term blasphemy would apply to any of the latter, because that's not the origin of the concept. Would ancient blasphemy laws, which Europe had for centuries and which prohibited uh, denouncing the Christian notions of God and Christian tenets of faith, would these so-called blasphemy laws apply today to Islamic notions of God and Islamic notions of faith? I don't know. So maybe none of these terms are really appropriate, and yet we end up using them, of course, uh, out of convention. So, If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella. Today's guest is Rabbi Armin Langer, and he is the author of a, an article on theconversation.com entitled, Quran burning in Sweden prompts debate on the fine line between freedom of expression and incitement of hatred. Well, honestly, uh, Armin, I certainly would have no problem myself uh, connecting uh, Islam with blasphemy because uh, certain um, Islamic countries have anti-blasphemy laws, such as Pakistan, and they're very broad. Uh, and people are being persecuted in places uh, like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia for what they call, at least at least that's the translation of the word. They, they may have an Arabic or Urdu word that, that is different, but certainly uh, the way it's translated, they, they call it blasphemy. Are you familiar with that? Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I don't know if they're using the same term in Arabic or Urdu, uh, my, my, my knowledge of uh, uh, West Asia or North Africa is uh, definitely limited. Um, but I, I, do, I still wonder whether, you know, these laws are, or these in particularly European laws uh, would apply today to non-Christian religious uh, expressions ah. in a Euro European context. Okay. Uh, th that's an open question. Sure, sure. In a European context, I, I understand there may be a difference. But no, certainly in Southeast Asia, it is uh, uh, deeply, deeply concerning. Um, what, what I find interesting is, so let's go back to the European model, and uh, especially, well, including rather, the United States and even this landmass before it was the United States of America, because uh, we have, of course, examples of 
uh, blasphemy laws being enforced in Puritan America. So uh, they can be quite draconian laws, that is, uh, uh, with severe punishments. And I believe if we go back to the uh, uh, 17th century, one could even face the death penalty for blasphemy. Am I correct? Uh, that's correct. Even in in the territory which is known today as the U.S. Yes, yes, which is still uh, again just to uh, make sure that we're being more universal. Uh, countries like Pakistan, you can also face the death penalty for what we would consider blasphemy today. So here's my question. Uh, well, I think I have the perfect um, the perfect sentence for someone who commits blasphemy in the Christian context or even the Islamic context, eternal life in hell. (laughs) By that I mean, by that I mean, why are people so concerned about punishing blasphemers when, according to their religion, they're already going to suffer the worst possible punishment? Now, whether you or I agree with the notion of an eternal hellfire, that it's besides the point. But these people do, but and yet they still feel it uh, important to punish them temporally. I'm, I'm would love to get your thoughts on that. Right. I mean, um, so I I know a bit about Jewish theology, not so much about Christian or Islamic. But I can tell you, in Jewish theology, in, in general, we assume that some of the punishment will be carried out by God, but others by the communities themselves. Uh, maybe that's an approach with, which is also shared by some Christian or uh, Islamic groups. I don't know. But uh, another another reason why many of the communities affected by so-called blasphemy today in Europe want to limit or punish even blasphemy is because blasphemy in this particular European context is part of something bigger. And that bigger is anti-immigration uh, agenda. The thing is that uh, all these criticism towards, okay, I, I should rephrase it. Much of the criticism of the Quran, much of the criticism of Islamic practices which has been occurring in Europe for many years now, um, is happening at the same time with an increase of uh, anti-Islam, anti-immigration political parties, political movements. And if we look at the current series of Quran burnings in Sweden, for instance, it was initiated by a Danish anti-immigration activist um, since then, many others joined him, and not everybody who burns an example of the Quran is motivated by anti-immigration feelings. But um, all these activ- activities of so-called blasphemy are entangled with a bigger anti-immigration agenda. So if people demand legal consequences for uh, these so-called uh, acts of blasphemy, I think that's also uh, some kind of a self-defense. Uh, marginalized communities, immigrant communities um, don't feel safe in a space where their religious practices, where their religious expressions are not respected. And they perceive this as a threat to their security in Western Europe. I, I w- uh, this, on, I, I, I would say that there's a significant difference between that and what uh, we were just discussing discussing a minute ago when we're talking about, uh, say, a European country uh, a couple centuries back, a European country or America, uh, either before the founding or after the actual uh, government, where y- you're talking about the majority religion, Christianity, and the established, the establishment of that religion, or the, the organizations of that religion, the churches, punishing people who are accused of blasphemy. So you, right, it's the majoritarian religion 
and they are punishing members of their own community for blasphemy, right? Whether it's uh, uh, the death penalty or put in stocks or whatever. That's, that's quite different from, say, what, what the, uh, the example you're just giving of people in the majoritarian religion committing acts of blasphemy against a minority, right? I mean, that's just... Yes, exactly. So uh, I, I think the social hierarchy of all, all of these different groups is also something we should take into consideration. And I would add that those who, um, I know, burn the Quran, for instance, now in Sweden and Denmark, and, and those who criticize Islamic practices of, I don't know, circumcision, headscarf, etc., they... I, I wouldn't call them representatives of the of the largest religious denomination, which would be Christianity, because normally the activists behind these acts are you know, not Christian pastors. They they might identify with certain Christian values and traditions, but um, just like the majority of Europeans, they are throughoutly uh, secular individuals whose ideas might be influenced by Christian traditions, but I wouldn't necessarily call them uh, Christian activists who are going against non-Christian forms of religious practice. You mentioned that not everybody who burns a Quran is anti-immigration. Uh, what other motivation could there be for burning a Quran? Right. So in the case of Sweden, actually, uh, there were a few cases where, where the Quran uh, was burned by so-called ex-Muslims, um, meaning uh, immigrants whose families came from Muslim-majority countries. Uh, in the case of Sweden, that was uh, Iraq, especially. And since they identify Islam with uh, oppressive practices, they decided to burn the uh, Islamic holy scriptures in the public arena. So these people, I would not qualify as uh, anti-immigration or Islamophobic agitators. Uh, they are expressing their criticism as members or former members of uh, the Islamic community. So it's, it's different from uh, far right. Uh, white Swedes and far-right white Danes burning the Quran. Um, I would still argue that since they are doing these uh, acts of so-called blasphemy in a predominantly uh, Swedish Christian, Christian normative environment and under the support or with the support of the previously mentioned far-right actors, um, I'm still not entirely sure that uh, these actions are uh, legitimate from a European, you know, uh, point of view. But I would definitely uh, view them differently than the uh, blasphemous acts committed by white nationalists. I, I, I don't think we should treat them equally, even if the results are the same, namely the burning of the Quran in the public sphere. What about people who might have honest criticism of any particular group, whether it would be uh, 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 Scandinavians criticizing uh, some practices of Islam that they don't that, that they feel uh, it, uh, might not be in line with their culture, with their worldview. or of course it could also be Muslims in a, in a Muslim majority nation criticizing uh, Christians, for uh, their practices. So, for instance, in uh, uh, somebody in Denmark might be frustrated to see women with hijabs, and uh, a, a Muslim in another country might be frustrated to see women in short dresses or, or uh, slacks. Right. Um, yeah. So, I think all of us, both the Christian in Denmark and the Muslim in a Muslim-majority country, have to learn to live with differences and respect differences. Um, it's it's not easy. I'm not saying this is easy, but a core to peaceful coexistence is not to push a universalistic agenda, meaning not to assume that one size fits all, but learning to accept uh, various groups, in particular minorities, 
uh, in particular minorities who are uh, who have been historically persecuted or or or, or othered in your community um, and, and get to know to these groups and respect their ways of living as long as these ways of living of course don't um, um, don't go against uh, human rights. Uh, Rabbi, we are done for today's episode, but I have many more questions to ask you, so I'm hoping that you'll be able to join us next week and we can continue this. Of course, I'd be delighted to. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Rabbi and scholar Armin Langer, who recently wrote an article for The Conversation entitled Quran Burning in Sweden Prompts Debate on the Fine Line between freedom of expression and incitement of hatred. Please join us again next week here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Rabbi and scholar Armin Langer. He recently wrote an article for The Conversation. You can find it at theconversation.com. It's entitled, Quran Burning in Sweden Prompts Debate on the Fine Line Between Freedom of Expression and the Incitement of Hatred. In our conversation last week, we talked about hate speech, freedom of expression, and blasphemy. It's uh, history here in the United States and in Europe. So today we will, again, continue that discussion. Some notes about our guest. Armin Langer is a visiting assistant professor at the University of Florida's Center for European Studies. Prior to joining UF, he was a visiting research scholar at Brandeis University. Armin holds a Ph.D. in sociology from Humboldt University in Berlin. He also studied philosophy and Jewish studies in Budapest, Jerusalem, Potsdam, and Washington, D.C. He was ordained as a rabbi by the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and has been teaching and had pulpit positions in Jewish communities in the U.S., Mexico, Sweden, Germany, Austria, and Hungary. So we welcome, once again, to Common Threads, Rabbi Armin Langer. Hello, Armin. Hi, Fred. Thank you for having me. Certainly, certainly. Um, So last week, if anyone missed it, we were talking about, as I mentioned, blasphemy, hate speech, freedom of expression, how uh, they they all interact together in, specifically in uh, free societies and the challenges that uh, uh, ensue. Um, And one of the things that uh, uh, occurred to me, when we think of blasphemy, you said last week that we tend to think of Christianity. I added that certainly in many 
Muslim-majority nations, there is uh, a concept of blasphemy, and that uh, the, the uh, penalty for it can be just as harsh as in Christian countries. And it occurred to me, I never seem to hear about, I hear about hate speech directed towards Jews, but not blasphemy. Growing up Jewish, did you ever come into uh, uh, contact with anyone, uh, rabbis, religious teachers, who talked about blasphemy and some sort of, uh, some sort of supernatural uh, penalty for uh, saying the wrong thing. So, so for instance, I, uh, I know that Spinoza was uh, convicted of something like, uh, it was probably more heresy than blasphemy, but to my understanding, it wasn't driven by the rabbis in the Netherlands. It was driven by the Christian establishment who put the, put the muscle to the, the rabbis. Uh, am I correct on that history? Um, as far as I know. Sounds correct. Yeah, I mean, I think Judaism is a bit different in a sense that Jews historically really did not have much power, right? And not having power also means that they did not have the opportunity to punish anybody. Um, they, there were, of course, occasions of excommunications, um, but they were fairly rare. And that had an impact on Jews' uh, behavior regarding blasphemy too, which doesn't mean that blasphemy in traditional Jewish texts is permitted. It is prohibited, but because of the lack of uh, Jewish sovereignty, uh, which was true for, as you know, almost two millennia, um, Jews did not exercise many of the uh, punishments that were permitted by traditional Jewish texts. I see. Okay, thank you for that. Another thing, last week we talked a great deal about, uh, in particular, Scandi- well, in general, European societies, and in particular, Scandinavian, Scandinavian societies, and the influx of Muslims uh, from a variety of countries and the challenges that ensue from, from that, from this new migration. And this is just a guess. I've got no science to, to back me up on this. But you've lived over there, and now you're living here. Isn't it possible that some countries just do immigration better because, and I'm quite frankly thinking of the United States, even though we're certainly not perfect, we already have a, a great diversity of cultures here. And in uh, Scandinavia, it seems like there's almost a monoculture. Uh, if you are Scandinavian by ancestry, you're, you're a blue-eyed blonde or, or fair-skinned, whatever. Uh, and there, there's just such a shared history there that when you bring in people with different social customs, different ethnicities, and different religions, it, it's harder to assimilate, it's harder to make things work than it is in the United States. Tell me if I'm wrong. So uh, what you're saying um, makes definitely sense. Like Historically, the United States has been more diverse when it comes to uh, its ethnic national composition due to its history as a uh, country which was you know, established by immigrants and refugees coming from a variety, variety of uh, European uh, societies and then from other parts of the world as history moves on. Um, so definitely when we look at uh, surveys about the acceptance of cultural diversity in the United States versus uh, Europe, these surveys will prove what you also just mentioned, that the United States is more accept, has a larger percentage of people who accept cultural diversity than uh, European societies. But um, in the past decades, Europe has been going through a uh, a number of immigration waves, not just Germany and France. I think by now everybody knows that both Germany and France have 
a sizable percentage of immigrant population in Germany. It's 26%. In, in France, it's also 20 something, 20, 23%, meaning it's a very significant portion of the country, which is either born to immigrant families or uh, is a first generation themselves. So uh, as as the percentage and the portion of immigrants and second generation immigrants grows, so too will hopefully an awareness uh, be born among Europeans that Europe is not ethnically uh, homogeneous. Um, and that's also true for the Scandinavian countries. Um, maybe not as much as uh, to Germany and France, but all these countries, Sweden in particular, are known for welcoming refugees. And not, not just since 2015, um, which was, of course, a very important year for European discourses on belonging and uh, cultural diversity because of the millions of refugees who arrived from Syria and other war-torn regions in West Asia to Europe, including to Sweden. But um, also these countries uh, have been home to refugees since the 1980s, 1990s from Somalia, uh, Iraq and, and other parts of the globe. So I think there is a lack of awareness of how diverse Europe actually is. And there is a lack of awareness for that even among Europeans. Uh, but uh, God willing, that that will change in the future. Um, do you see a more positive trend as of late? Uh, uh, certainly, if something happens like the Quran burning in Sweden, that's going to make headlines. But to the best of your knowledge, on a day-to-day -day basis, are things getting better? My impression is that for the new generation of Europeans who are already born into multicultural societies and who, have, who, who, went, who go to school with classmates, with origins in various regions of the globe are more aware of this uh, diversity than previous generations, which doesn't mean that there is no anti-immigration sentiments among uh, young Europeans, because there is definitely, and if we look at their voting behavior, we can see that there is still uh, a lot of support for anti-immigration parties and movements among young Europeans. But in general, they are more open-minded than uh, my generation or, or the generations before me. Um, so I put my hope into the new European generations, and then you know we'll see how it works out. I'm, I'm just uh, curious, from a very pragmatic standpoint, here in the United States, people who are anti-immigrant, regardless of whether we're talking about uh, Muslims from Syria or Christians from El Salvador, uh, they they seem to overlook the fact that we need people in this country. We are not reproducing ourselves in the same numbers we were a generation or two ago. And uh, businesses are suffering, hence the, uh, the, the country, to some degree, is suffering because we need more people. Is that the, the case in Europe? Um, I, I believe I'm correct that you're not re reproducing yourselves uh, as much as, as you used to as well. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, Western European countries, or European countries in general, are aging populations. And Immigration is really uh, an economic necessity. Um, and that's something that uh, many do understand, but not everybody. Um, it's, it's, not just, it's not just that our populations are aging and we need people who are actually working and paying taxes, but many of these conspiracy myths which are used to justify anti-immigrationism not just in the united states but also in europe are really false that very often we hear that we can't take in any more immigrants or refugees because they are abusing the welfare system but we actually know that those who are uh, citizens use the welfare 
system much more often than those were immigrants or even naturalized. Um, other statistics about crime prove that crime rates among immigrants are actually lower than among uh, citizens. And, and there, there are very reasonable explanations for this. Of course, the risk uh, you're having if you commit a crime as an immigrant is much higher than uh, if you commit it as a citizen. So it's not very reasonable to commit a crime if you're an immigrant, you will get or you might get deported, uh, just to name an example or, or one consequence that you might face. So it's really easy to explain rationally why um, immigration really shouldn't be an issue, but just recognized as a necessity. Uh, and yet, and yet, um, fears do exist uh, and are very visible, not just in uh, European countries, but of course, also here in the US. And uh, I think that uh, education is one way of tackling that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella. With me today is rabbi and scholar Armin Langer, and he recently wrote an article for The Conversation. You can read it at theconversation.com. It's entitled, Quran Burning in Sweden Prompts Debate on the Fine Line Between Freedom of Expression and the Incitement of Hatred. One of the things I really loved about your article is you have multiple hyperlinks uh, and people can go down a real rabbit hole just learning more and more and more about, uh, the, about the subject because uh, you have connected us with so many other experts on the, uh, on the subject. I'm, now, I can't remember whether you are the one who included George Kelman in your article or if I found that on a, um, on a hyperlink that you included in the article. But uh, uh, if, if you can speak to this, I'd love it. He, he uh, decided to name his business I Choose Hell Productions. Uh, was, that, was that part of you or was that a hyperlink? Someone else? I, I think that was a hyperlink. But... Oh, okay. I, I'm just going to say talking about... Well, we can talk about it. Anyway. Okay, great, great. I, I'm just going to say that's, that's pretty hilarious. Uh, that uh, someone decided that that uh, <laughs> that was a, a, a bad name for a company, and uh, initially he he wasn't going to be allowed to use that name. And just so you know, for future conversation, Armin, uh, we have a city right here in Michigan by the name of Hell. <laughs> so okay, well, so you made me curious, and I want to come and visit. I know. <laughs> so if I tell you to go to Hell to have a good time. I'm not being blasphemous. <laughs> so I'm I'm really glad that he was he was able to um to use that that name. So uh, a couple of other things too. You mention uh Russia and Russia now has blasphemy laws. I can't imagine that they did that to protect minority religions. I, I, I'm assuming that this is a, a deal made between the Kremlin and the Russian Orthodox Church. It, do we know anything about that? Yeah, I mean, your assumption is right. Um, Russia did not have a blasphemy law before. Um, that was, of course, not necessary in the Soviet system uh, because religion itself was you know, not protected. Um, but in recent years, they introduced a blasphemy law after um, the activist collective known as Pussy Riot um, had a bunch of interventions in churches and other uh, public spaces where they called out the entanglement of the Russian government with the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and the blasphemy law in Russia now prohibits any kind of action that would, uh, so to say, di disrupt the church services, for instance, or, or the dignity of the church. Um, to me, that's a different case. To me, Russia is a special case. Russia might be in Europe, but the conversation they are having about blasphemy is not the same conversation uh, as the rest of Europe is having. No, no, and I suspect that uh, they're not going to come to the to the aid of, say, Muslims, 
uh, the way they would come to the aid of the Russian Orthodox Church should anyone criticize or in in, in any way blaspheme uh, the religion. Um, you mentioned in the article about Pussy Riot, uh, they they had a punk prayer, and I remember Pussy Riot, but I don't remember the punk prayer. Was this something? Would they go into churches and and recite something that was? Uh, not looked upon with great favor by the clergy and adherents? Right. I mean, recite is very mildly put. Um, <laughs> they went there to interrupt basically the service with uh, uh, loud music and songs. And uh, it's they were essentially a punk band. Um, right. Um, so many, I know many in the church might have perceived their action as uh you know, lacking respect to God or, or Christianity or whatever. But I think if we read the lyrics of their songs and their interventions, they are clearly about the church and Putin and the entanglement of these two actors. They are, I mean, if you consider Putin a God or a manifestation of God, I guess they are blasphemous. But uh, uh, to my understanding, Pussy Riot was more about the political uh, or the religious uh, legitimization of this authoritarian system uh, than criticism of God or criticism of Christianity. It's, it's interesting. It occurred to me while reading your article that uh, I didn't pay a great deal of attention to the entanglement of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Kremlin until the war in Ukraine. Then it became mm-hmm. it became very very apparent that, uh, that there's some sort of uh, I'll I'll use the word evil some sort of evil connection between an, the establishment church of the country and its government. And uh, it, it doesn't seem like they're going to extricate from one another anytime soon. Correct. Right. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church at this point is ready to legitimize whatever uh, Putin and his government are going for. That's also true for the ongoing war in the Ukraine, which also led to a division within the Orthodox Church, because obviously the Orthodox Church is also the largest Christian denomination in Ukraine, uh, which was historically very much tied to the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, and there are still ongoing conversations, whether their ties are too strong. Um, yeah, it also, it's religion and politics are complicated, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it, led to the, it led to the inception of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which sounds, right, it right. sounds like uh, it could be a church that was established in like 1506, but no, it's like yesterday. <laughs> right, so it, it was established like yesterday, and it was established to be independent from the from Moscow and the Orthodox Church in Russia, but according to according to reports, there is still a lot of um, interaction between these two chapters of Orthodox Christianity. So I wonder what will be the next step and uh, whether the Ukrainian Orthodox Church will truly be able to achieve independence from uh, Russia. Will will find that out. If these are really recent developments, so we can I don't I can't tell you that I, at this point. I, I'm not asking. <laughs> I, understand, yeah. I understand that. Uh, another question. In 1969, German outlawed criticism of religion and worldviews. And the year fascinated me uh, because this certainly is, well, I wouldn't think that in 1969 we were talking about accommodating immigrants of different religions. I'm wondering if uh, it was if Germany at that point was just uh, coming to terms with their anti-Semitic past, and and that perhaps was the impetus of this uh, uh, outlawing of criticism. Do, do you know what the motivation was? Right. So. Um... You're right. It probably had n- not much, if anything, to do with religious minorities. I mean, Germany had, 
had already a significant uh, Turkish immigrant population in the late 1960s, but uh, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't believe that the passing of that law had to do anything with them. Um, right. So even though 1969 is already decades after uh, the Holocaust, um, many say that Germany really started to deal with its past only in the late 1960s and 70s. Uh, that's connected to the uh, youth movements of the 19 of 1968 and the following years, uh, which demanded uh, the German cultural political elite to face its responsibility towards the Jewish community and other communities which were persecuted in the Holocaust. Um, and that law um, might have been influenced by those political movements and the uh, erupting conversation on the Holocaust, which was, as I mentioned before, really not that significant in the immediate aftermath of the war. I see. Armin, we're coming down to the end of another episode of Common Threads, but I wanted to ask you, uh, your your position at the University of Florida, uh, is, is this something you view as temporary, or might you be making Florida or the United States your home for a while now? So, my position at this point is temporary, but um, I've been here for two years now. I and I'm loving it. So I wouldn't mind it turning into something permanent. Um, we'll see. We'll see how things develop. Well, again, uh, um, Armin, it's been great having you both uh, this week and last week as well. So, so thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you for, thank you for the opportunity um, and the great conversation. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been rabbi and scholar Armin Langer, who recently wrote an article for theconversation.com entitled Quran Burning in Sweden, prompts debate on the fine line between freedom of expression and incitement of hatred. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU Radio. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.